Now I feel the need to teach Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So open your Bibles there and navigate on your device so you can follow along. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. We're studying through the book of Exodus, and these are our verses this morning. The topic, Moses gets off to a bad start as Israel's deliverer when he kills an Egyptian. The title of our message, Kill and Grace. Let's have a word of prayer. That took a while, first service too, so it works. It's a good one. Father, we appreciate this text, ancient text with modern application, but only if your Holy Spirit is here as our teacher and we submit to him. So we do that right now, Lord, in Jesus' name, and everyone who agreed said, amen. New York lawyer Oliver Wendell Douglas longed for a simpler way of life. So he bought a farm, sight unseen, and he moved there to live off the land. Lisa, his socialite wife, never quite got the hang of country living. Hers was a case of, you can take the girl out of the city, but you can't take the city out of the girl. If you think that's a true story, you're either really young or unfamiliar with Nick at Night. That's the plot for the comedy series Green Acres, Starring Ava Gabor as the pampered city girl. How many of you remember Green Acres? Classic TV, right up there with McHale's Navy. (laughs) Depending on the point you're trying to make, you can substitute just about anything for city in the idiom that I used. If you're going for a compliment, you can substitute with the name of a state, such as you can take the girl out of Texas, but you can't take Texas out of the girl. If you're going for an insult, you can substitute places like Trailer Park, Hood, Ghetto, Riverdale. (laughs) It never gets old. It just never gets old. I think I could just get up here and say Riverdale and you would laugh. But anyway, I was thinking about Moses in this regard. A Hebrew by birth, from at least the age of three, he was raised as an Egyptian prince. As to his Hebrew heritage, we would say, you can take the boy away from the Hebrews, but you can't take the Hebrew out of the boy. When you get to Moses as an Egyptian, you have to adjust the idiom to something more like this. You take the man out of Egypt in order to take Egypt out of the man. Moses the prince could never deliver the Hebrews. He must become Moses the pastor. God did not need a soldier. He needed a shepherd. Commentators see Egypt as a type of the supernatural world system that's governed by Satan, the God of this world. When you get saved, you're delivered out of Egypt, but because we retain an unredeemed body of flesh, the evil forces exert their pressure upon us to compromise with the world. They draw us back towards and sometimes even into Egypt. We are out of Egypt, but is Egypt out of us? I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God gets you out of Egypt and saves you effectually. And number two, God gets, you, uh, God gets Egypt rather out of you, so you serve him effectively. Let's take a look at uh, getting out of Egypt in verses 11 through 15. In the book of Job, in the first two chapters, you're given a rare glimpse behind the scenes. Job was unaware that in heaven God had called a meeting of angels. As they gave an account to God of their activities on the earth, one of them, Satan, accused Job of serving God only because he had been abundantly blessed by God. You know the story. Satan procured permission from God to trouble Job up to a certain set point. He wanted to see if Job's faith would fail. It did not. 
Now, in Egypt at the time of Moses, as always, there was stuff going on behind the scenes in heaven and in the heavenlies. We're not told directly what was going on, but we know that Pharaoh was revered as a god among the many gods of Egypt. The man who would deliver the Hebrews from bondage in Egypt wasn't going against a government. He was confronting gods. Swords were of no use to a deliverer, but a shepherd's staff would do nicely. Thus we see how the prince turned pastor would get out of Egypt and find his staff. We begin in verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. When we last saw Moses, Pharaoh's daughter had saved him from the river Nile and adopted him as her own son. He grew up in her house. Other than that, Exodus is pretty light on the details. It's a good thing we have Stephen's speech in chapter seven of the book of Acts to fill in some gaps. In trouble for preaching the gospel, Stephen rehearses the history of the Jews to the religious leaders seeking to accuse and stone him. He says of Moses, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. 40 years is a long time to walk like an Egyptian. I think it's safe to assume he had the very finest education on the planet at that time. The Egyptians were no dummies. They contributed much more than the mummy. According to one source, the many achievements of the ancient Egyptians include the quarrying, surveying, and construction techniques that supported the building of monumental pyramids, temples, and obelisks, a system of mathematics, a practical and effective system of medicine, irrigation systems, and agricultural production techniques the first known planked boats and glass technology. Moses was mighty in words and in deeds. Speculation among scholars is that he may have been groomed to be the next Pharaoh, but speculation is all that it is. Even without the throne in his future, he was a seriously important citizen of an incredibly advanced and powerful civilization. As an aside, just food for thought, Moses must have participated at some level in the religious rituals of Egypt and its gods. He certainly would have been catechized as a boy into the worship of Egypt. Now, excuse the pun, but Moses was at the top of the pyramid, one of just a few super-privileged individuals in Egypt. When we read, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, the gap is as wide as it can be between his lifestyle and his heritage. That phrase, it came into his heart, is the inspired commentary of Stephen in the book of Acts. It describes the stirring of his heart by God the Holy Spirit. We can assume that Moses had received some kind of word from God. We read of him in Hebrews 11.24, by faith, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Where does this kind of faith come from? Well, according to Romans 10.17, it always comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's an example of God speaking, maybe through creation, maybe through some other way, in order to give everyone, in this case Moses, an opportunity to believe. Maybe Moses learned about the God of Abraham from his mom, who was paid to nurse him until he was weaned. However it happened, by grace, God stirred the heart of Moses, and Moses responded by faith. We would say he was saved, he believed God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. His belief would turn out to be costly, 
We further read about Moses in the New Testament book of Hebrews, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses chose affliction and reproach because he now looked beyond Egypt to the reward, which is eternal life in heaven. Stephen also said when Moses was grown, he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Then here in Exodus uh, 2.12 we read, So he looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This was murder. Now, that seems obvious, but there are some commentators who try and soften the blow. Uh, they say that Moses was in a position where he could murder people if he wanted to, uh, and, uh, or maybe that he was avenging the Hebrew uh, situation as an avenger of blood or any of that. And the only reason I can think of for them wanting to argue that this wasn't murder is because they're having a hard time with the fact that God is going to use a murderer to be a deliverer and later call him the meekest man on the face of the earth that ever was. And so uh, all I can say is that people don't understand the grace of God. Uh, Moses starts off badly for sure, but God can overcome even the murderer and lead him to a place of service. And so whatever it is that you think you've done that disqualifies you from God's love or God's service uh, let God's grace minister to you today. Moses tried unsuccessfully to do this in secret, so he certainly didn't have a right to do it. He hid the body, must have been worried that someone would find it, and the next day when one of the Hebrews accused him, he ran, knowing that he was now a fugitive, and Pharaoh, when he heard about it, he sought to kill Moses, and so this was very definitely a murder. It was a capital crime. So as I said, Moses was off to a poor start. How do you come back from murder to be God's deliverer? Well, the truth is, we're all murderers, we're all adulterers, we're all covetous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so Moses is typical of all of us. Now, we need saving, and that doesn't just mean the one-time receiving of Jesus as our Savior. Stephen Cook explains salvation this way. He says, regarding salvation, the Bible teaches that it is a process. Once a person believes God, he is saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, and he will ultimately be saved from the presence of sin when God takes him to heaven and gives him a new body like the body of Jesus. This truth is related to three phases of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is the instantaneous act of God whereby he forgives the sinner of all sins, past, present, and future, and declares him perfectly righteous in his sight. Sanctification is the process whereby that believer moves from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity over time as he learns God's word and makes good choices to live according to God's will. Glorification is the final phase of salvation. It occurs when the believer leaves this world either by death or the rapture and enters into the presence of God in heaven. Now, I outline this first set of verses by saying God gets you out of Egypt and saves you effectually. What I mean is that after you are justified, after you are saved, you are then predestined to become like Jesus Christ. God is constantly at work to sanctify you. 
he will ultimately glorify you. He who began a good work in you, the work of salvation, will be faithful to complete it. Verse 13, and when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? And then he said, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Stephen's commentary on this is again insightful. He said, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses thought he was ready to deliver God's people. By his hand is the key phrase. Moses had powerful hands, politically, socially, materially. His hands were the hands in Egypt that could get things done. It seems he killed the Egyptian taskmaster with his bare hands. And so physically, his hands were powerful as well. Nevertheless, it wouldn't be by Moses' hands. It would be by God's hand that the Hebrews would be delivered. Can you think of a better deliverer for, Hebrews, uh, for the Hebrews than Moses? I mean, if we lived at that time, you would look at Moses and think, here's a guy who is now identifying with the Hebrew nation. He knows the ins and outs of the court of Pharaoh. He's a tremendously powerful man on every front. Uh, perhaps he can mount a coup. Uh, he must have military officers that are sympathetic with him. Uh, I mean, this is the greatest opportunity that, to come along in, in a long time. He could tap into the five or 600,000 Hebrew men uh, who would be on his side. I mean, this is the guy that you and I would choose and we would think that this was the moment. We'd have rallied behind him, but it would have been an epic fail because Moses was gonna go up against gods, remember, represented by things like water and lice and frogs. He was going to go up against Pharaoh who thought himself a god. Swords were no good in that fight, but we're gonna see that a shepherd's staff was perfect. In fact, if you think about it, had Moses been able to deliver the children of Israel at that time, had he been able to overthrow the government, probably the Jews would have never left Egypt. They would have settled in Egypt, intermarried perhaps even with the Egyptians. History would have gone in a completely weird direction. And yet, putting ourselves in that day and time, like Moses, we would have thought it's by his hand that this is gonna happen. And so that's what this story is about. It's about the strangeness of God's dealings on the earth, but in a way that is perfectly wonderful. Swords were no good. He needed a shepherd's staff, and that would be perfect if wielded by a shepherd. It wasn't the staff itself. It also needed a shepherd's hand. We can be certain that Moses, in all of his learning, had no experience as a shepherd he'd gain it and use it not just to deliver the Hebrews, but to lead them in the wilderness. God looked upon him and he knew that he was not at all ready. God needed to get Moses out of Egypt in order to get Egypt out of him. Now, Moses killing the Egyptian, I wanna say that's on him and not on God. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say it wasn't the way God wanted to get Moses out of Egypt. It would have been better for the spirit to simply lead Moses out like he did with John the Baptist being led out into the wilderness or to drive him out the way he drove Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days. Moses' heart had been stirred, but he had a lot to unlearn. 
A great deal of the time spent on our sanctification is God getting Egypt out of us. We have a lot to unlearn. We almost always prefer the weapons of this world to the spiritual weapons that God puts at our disposal. Our serving God using carnal things with a fleshly attitude will never be effectual. It will not destroy enemy strongholds. It will not be used to open blind eyes to the good news of the gospel. We always need a Jesus style of ministry. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to die that we might live, but living is taking up our cross and dying to self, surrender to him. Paul the Apostle put it this way. He said in 1 Corinthians 1, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The man or woman God uses must be willing to look foolish, to be perceived as weak, to be considered base, to feel despised. I doubt any of those qualities are check marks on your resume builder app. If you're applying for a job, there's nowhere where you can describe how foolish you are, how weak you can be, how base you feel, and how despised you are. It just, those aren't the qualities that your employer is looking for, but they are the qualities that God wants to work in you because through that kind of a person, he can be glorified. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses typifies what we are taught by the world to strive for, education, power, security, achievement, promotion, health. You could add to that list. I mean, Moses is, to use our modern terminology, a poster boy for the best that the world has to offer you. It ought to dawn on us that the things the world values cannot be the things that will overcome the world. And so if the world is valuing something, then it can't be that which is going to overcome the world. Sanctification is becoming less like 40-year-old Moses and more like 80-year-old Moses when he returns and overcomes Egypt. Older you should always be headed in that direction. Now, in verses 16 through 22, God gets Egypt out of you so you serve him effectively. Dirty Jobs, that's a fun show to watch, isn't it? Mike Rowe performs disgusting, messy, strange jobs alongside those who must do them every day. If he were doing a show in Egypt, one of the dirtiest jobs from their way of thinking was tending livestock. Back in Genesis, when Joseph is prepping his father and brothers to meet the former Pharaoh, the one who would be kind to them and let them live in Egypt, he was trying to get them to be able to lay, hang out by themselves as a family in Goshen. And so he said, if you tell Pharaoh your occupation, then he won't want to have anything to do with you. Here's how he put it. He said, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? Say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, and you'll be able to dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, commentators go crazy trying to figure out what it is about being a shepherd or being a livestock tender that bothered the Egyptians, nobody knows. 
But um, you probably can think of a job that is demeaning and, you know, that, you know don't shout it out, please, because somebody else is doing it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, I'll say it. And I don't believe it for a minute. I've had to fight this my whole life. But my dad, rest his soul, uh, he would always say, if you don't do this, this, or this, you're going to end up a garbage man. I mean, to him, that was the bottom. I mean, you know, and now I look at the, I look at the sanitation engineers and I think, <laughs> God bless you guys. You know, it's a, it's a you know, I, he should have thought of something else. But anyway, uh, typical of God. And, and you and I, I mean, if, if we get our, our Bible thinking caps on, typical of God he was going to confront and defeat Pharaoh with someone and something that the Egyptians considered abominable. Moses' shepherd school was about to begin, starting with the incident by the well. But God looks at things so much differently than us. We look at this and say, you need a military leader, a guy like Moses, the prince of Egypt. God says, no, what I really need is a shepherd who is abominable to the Egyptians. And Moses is going to do nicely, but not until I break him down. So he's by the well, and he says in verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water, filled the troughs to draw water uh, with their father's flock. Midian was a son of Abraham's by his second wife, Keturah. Thus the Midianites had the knowledge of the God of Abraham. So when you read he was the priest of Midian, it's likely his family believed in God, not in pagan idols. He was a priest uh, after the order of those who followed the God of Abraham. So verse 17, then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Chivalry was dead, it seemed, in Midian. The male shepherds, instead of lending a hand, made the ladies wait every day. Moses wasn't raised that way, and so he got involved. Not everything in your upbringing is bad. There are things that can be sanctified as you offer yourself to God. We see that Moses had a bent towards helping the disadvantaged, first the slaves, now women. We ought to have compassion on all those who are less advantaged than us. We ought to seek the Lord on when and how to come to their aid. We live in the land of opportunity, it's true, but maybe it's you that's going to give someone else less fortunate that opportunity. It doesn't always good to say, well, we live in a land of opportunity, so find yours. Well, a lot of people got a leg up from somebody. They got help, you know. So I read stories sometimes. My dad gave me a million dollars and I turned it into a billion dollars. I'll try that. I'm on board. Give me a million. I'll give me a $500,000. You know, I don't even need a billion. I'll turn 500,000 into a million. I'll be happy. But somebody gave him a leg up. And so uh, don't think that it's not up to us to help others. Verse 18. When they came to Reuel, their father, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? Reuel means something like friend of God. So again, I emphasize these were believers. Reuel is also called Jethro in the Bible and later in our story. That's not a problem. A lot of Bible characters had more than one name. Being hassled by the other shepherds was a regular part of their day. Returning early was odd. And I'm guessing that they were more than a little giddy having been helped by this powerful, handsome, Charlton Heston-like Moses. <laughs> Well, I mean, you've got to know that Moses was a good-looking guy. I mean, he was a powerful, good-looking guy. They could tell he was an Egyptian. They probably didn't get too many Egyptian princes out in the wilderness. Uh, and so this was, a, this was a big thing. And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he drew enough water for us and watered the flock. 
Now, that's something that didn't happen every day. If you're like me, you prefer a normal routine. If you do, look for things that interrupt your regular routine. They may be divine appointments at the well of the Holy Spirit. And so every day, these ladies went out to water their flocks, and every day, the other shepherds made them wait day in, day out, day in, day out, so much that their father, Reuel, thought it was weird that they came home early And it was weird, and it was a Holy Spirit moment for them. And so look for interruptions in your schedule. Look around, see what the Lord might have for you. Verse 20, so he said to his daughters, where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Now, first, dad was embarrassed by their lack of hospitality. Even if he had not helped them, in that nomadic culture, they ought to have invited him to come to meet their dad and have a a meal. Visitors out in the desert were rare. Secondly, Dad was obviously on the hunt for husbands. Now, seriously, with seven daughters living in the Midian desert and a bunch of brutish shepherds as potential son-in-laws, these are your potential son-in-laws, these other shepherds who make fun of your daughters and mistreat them, this Egyptian needed to be snagged as quickly as possible. I mean, what do you like to eat, Moses? Hey, if it's lasagna and it hasn't been invented yet, we're going for it. Whatever it is, you've got it. Then Moses was content to live with the man and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. See, that was the goal all along. How much time elapsed in this verse, I can't tell. An arranged marriage, perfectly normal. And I'm sure Zipporah was happy with it. She didn't have to marry one of the deadhead shepherds that she knew. And so she was in good shape. Now, what are the odds Moses would find a believing family with a believing wife? If you're in the marriage market, or when your children are, it can seem like a vast desert filled with brutes, both men and women. Stay seated by the well until a believer comes along. Trust in God's counsel to not be unequally yoked with a non-believer. I mean, I know people say, well, Hanford, there's nobody to marry in Hanford, which that's not true. But it's an exaggeration. But you, know, you feel that way. I'll tell you where there was nobody to marry. In the desert of Midian. That's where. And yet God put this together, or at least provided uh, for it. And so be patient. She bore him a son and called his name Gershom. He called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Gershom means stranger or something like that. And so every time Moses looked at him or called him, He reminded him that he was a fugitive stranger in a foreign land. What's with these Bible parents saddling their children with these terrible names? I think of Rachel in her dying moments, names her child Benoni, son of my sorrow. Thanks a lot, mom. (laughs) Jacob mercifully renames him Benjamin, son of my right hand. All right, I like that. There are a lot of other crazy names in the Bible. And you know where else there are crazy names? Among Christians. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. But give careful thought to names, especially what nicknames are going to be suggested by the name. That's probably the most important thing. Once you come up with a name like Gene, then do the Gene, Gene, Bo Bean, Banana, Fana, Fofine, Fifi, Momine, Gene, that kind of thing, right? Because from Gene, you get Gino and Eugenio and Giner and... You know, all those kinds of things and stuff. And so I can live with that. But there are some names that have nicknames that, well, you know, they're like a boy named Sue kind of things, you know. Just be careful. Moses embarked upon his second career. He'd gone from prince to pastor. 
he would learn the ways of a shepherd and he would use the staff. Now you and I know what's coming. Confrontation with Pharaoh. Staff beats sword in that one. You ever play rock, paper, scissors? Here, let's all do it together. No, that's not. There was a kid in the church, I won't mention his name, but he knows who he is. He came up with a fascinating uh, slant on that. He'd play for a while, and then in the final moment when he could be defeated, he'd go, what is that? Atomic fire. Beats everything every time. Well, why play? You don't know. Let's play. What if you both do atomic fire? Then it's the apocalypse, I guess. I don't know. But you know what? When Moses goes and confronts Pharaoh, a shepherd with a staff, atomic fire. I mean, Pharaoh has no chance. Even though they go through some stuff with his magicians and all that, he has no chance. We know what's coming after that even. Moses is going to lead the Hebrews like a shepherd 11 days into the wilderness to the borders of the promised land. Three million people following him as he holds the staff of God and brings them to the, uh, to the border of their land. We know what's coming sadly even after that. Moses must lead the children of Israel, the disobedient children of Israel who refuse to go into the land 40 years in the desert as a shepherd. And so he needed serious training as a shepherd. No prince could have ever accomplished what Moses was set out to accomplish. He may have been able to overthrow the government. He may have been able to give the Hebrews civil rights. But no one could have gotten them out of Egypt and into the promised land after 40 years of wandering besides the shepherd of God. And so you see God's plan, his foresight, his foreknowledge, his provision as he understands what's going to happen. God needed a pastor, but one who first rejected being a prince and unlearned everything he had learned. If God isn't using you, maybe you haven't rejected things that you believe make you strong and ready. We like to feel strong and ready. When I was joking previously about foolishness and being base and despised, you don't want to go to work or school tomorrow and be the fool, the one everybody considers the fool or the one who is despised. When you walk up, all the conversation stops and people move in a different direction. Nobody, nobody signs on for that. You're not excited about that, are you? Probably not. You should be, maybe, because God says, that's the person I'm going to use. And then you think, okay, God, everybody thinks I'm an absolute fool. Would you please use me? Use me right now. I mean, Moses... Yeah, you know, we don't live as long as these guys, thank goodness. Otherwise, you know, Moses, it, he was like 80 by the time he got back. He was an old guy with gray hair. But, uh, you know, nobody signs on for that kind of thing. The Apostle Paul once said of himself, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I am blameless. Paul had it all going as far as the world of Judaism was concerned, but he came to this conclusion. He says, what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, I was thinking about this, and I asked myself this question, did God ever use things in Paul's background? And the answer is sure, he did. 
used a lot of things in Paul's background, but it's interesting, he seems that he only used them after Paul submitted to being mistreated for the sake of Jesus Christ. For example, we know that when the authorities in Philippi came to release Paul from jail, they put him in jail overnight, they came to release him, and when they did, he said, guys, I need to tell you something. I am a Roman citizen. And these guys were in a world of trouble because they had violated the civil rights of a Roman citizen. They couldn't imagine that Paul was a Roman citizen, didn't ask him, he didn't volunteer it. These guys could have gone to jail or worse for their treatment of him. And so it seems that Paul invoked that in order to give them a more favorable opinion about the believers he was gonna leave behind, maybe so that they would not, so they would think, hey, we don't want any trouble with this Paul guy. We don't want him to bring charges against us, so let's just leave the people that he converted to Christ alone. And so that's a great story, but why didn't Paul say something the day before when they arrested him and threw him in jail and held him in the stocks? He had said nothing. Instead, he and Silas there were singing at midnight when God shook the place with an earthquake. All the cells broke open. All the prisoners were escaping. The jailer was going to kill himself because his life was forfeit, having lost all of his prisoners. Paul the Apostle says, hey, don't do that. Everything's fine. None of the prisoners are going anywhere. In fact, I'm going to your house for dinner, or I guess it'd be a late morning snack. And while he was there, he led him, the jailer and his whole family, to faith in Jesus Christ, and then they all went back to jail. And so you don't have that if Paul immediately invokes his rights. If when they go to arrest him, he says, oh, you're not arresting me, I'm a Roman citizen. All right, you're clear. No, he he let it go by the leading of the Holy Spirit so that whole story could unfold. Only after he had been mistreated did he invoke his rights. Paul was in custody for a long time after that, a different time, before he finally said, I appeal to Caesar. He didn't immediately appeal to Caesar to get to Rome. I think it was one or two years he was in custody and he finally said, hey, this is going nowhere so I appeal to Caesar. This all tells me that we sometimes invoke our rights too soon. We refuse to suffer and therefore God's not able to use our surrender or our weakness to reach others for Jesus. If Paul invokes his rights before he does, then then none of these great stories happen. And that is true of us as well. If we always immediately invoke our rights, that's probably why no great stories are happening. That problem you're having at work, maybe you should file a grievance or apply for another position or quit and get a different job. Or maybe you should patiently endure it as a Christian and see what God can accomplish through you. Yeah, I know, it feels like you're in the stocks. It feels like you're a fool. It feels like you're despised. It feels like you're base, worthless. There's an earthquake coming. God's gonna use that at some point. Maybe you'll see it, maybe you won't. God's not obligated to tell you how he's using your foolishness, but he can use it and he will. As a young believer, I was exposed to the music ministry of Keith Green. His song and album, So You Wanna Go Back to Egypt, classic stuff. So you want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure? Are you sorry you bought the one-way ticket when you thought you were sure? You wanted to live in the land of promise, but now it's getting hard. Are you sorry you're out here in the desert instead of your own backyard? 
The rest of your life, God is going to be working to get Egypt out of you. That desire to compromise with and even return to the world that he has delivered you from. As you're learning about the Lord, you're also simultaneously unlearning things about the world that are still in you. You can hold on to the world and think that you're a prince, or you can let go of the world and be used as a pastor to shepherd others into the knowledge of salvation and eternal life.